Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. Before we jump into the show, I want to let you know that my signature course, Brand Strategy 101, is now open for enrollment inside the Brand Design Masters Academy. This is a foundational course for creative professionals and entrepreneurs who want to get started with brand strategy so you can sell bigger projects, increase your fees for the creative work you already do, and get paid for the thinking and advice you've probably been given away for free. The moment you enroll, you get immediate lifetime access to seven modules of training with over eight hours of instructional videos, 25 lessons in all, plus 24 downloadable strategy tools and conversation guides. In Brand Strategy 101, I've taken complex strategic methodologies used by the world's most respected global branding agencies and crafted them into a deceptively simple turnkey process and toolkit that you can use with your clients, even if you've never done brand strategy before or don't know where to start. Brand Strategy 101 draws from my 25 years of experience working with clients ranging from entrepreneurs to small to medium-sized businesses all the way up to the Fortune 100. So if you're ready to up your game and bulletproof your career and protect your business from the downward pricing pressure of sites like Fiverr and Upwork, then Brand Strategy 101 is the place to start. Just go to philipvandusen.com BS101 and enroll in Brand Strategy 101 today. Again, just go to philipvandusen.com BS101 and enroll now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Brand Design Masters podcast. I'm your host, Philip Van Dusen, and today I am here with Olesa Lorowski. And Olesa is a leadership and high-performance coach who helps people achieve their full potential by utilizing psychological science to achieve their goals. Her areas of focus are optimal performance, motivation, neuropsychology, and stress optimization, which I want to get into with her. She works with clients like Microsoft, Amazon, and Accenture, as well as entrepreneurs and startup founders. She has a graduate degree in psychology from Harvard University and is previously head of marketing at the Institute of Coaching at Harvard Medical School and continues to serve as an advisor to Seattle area startups. And with that, I'd like to welcome Alessa. Hi, Philip. Thanks for having me here. Looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your business focus, your professional focus? Yeah, so like you mentioned, um, I mostly work in uh, the tech industry. So most of my clients are in some form of tech. Um, I also work with several entrepreneurs as well. But um, really, the majority of my client base are tech leaders. So what I do is I use psychological tools, psychological science, and just plain coaching to help support them and to increase their motivation and effectiveness on uh, managing their teams and creating the products that we all know and love. Do you do that long term and you kind of work on retainer or like a psychologist or is it kind of a one shot deal? How do you go about it? So the way I really help people understand this is kind of like, think about if you've ever tried to learn a language, I want my kind of interaction with you to be kind of like that. So essentially, we're learning a new mindset, a new way to think, a new way to perceive the world. So I typically like to work with people on six month increments. And at the end of the six months, we want to have that goal achieved. So it's slightly different than therapy in that way. With that said, I do have clients that work with me long term. (laughs) The way you came across my radar is I got your newsletter on LinkedIn. You do a really great newsletter on LinkedIn. And this one was about overthinking as it relates to happiness. 
And that made me want to contact you and get you on the podcast because, I mean, to a certain extent, everyone who listens to this regularly knows that having a psychologist is somewhat of a red herring on my podcast, but I think it's really germane to what's happening today. And so talk a little bit about overthinking versus happiness. Like, how do those things overlap? What's the Venn diagram? Yeah. So I think what you're referring to is the article on overthinking and planning. Mm. This is something that a lot of my clients struggle with. So essentially, if you think about it, overthinking and planning are like a spectrum, right? And like anything in this world, really, there's a certain amount that you can do that was helpful. And then there's a certain amount that is harmful. Sometimes in medicine, we call this hormetic stress. You know, like uh, running is good for you to a certain point. And then when you run too much, you're injured, right? Or dehydrated or whatever. So what happens is oftentimes um, what we see is that individuals think that the thinking that they're doing in their minds, the kind of projecting into the future, perhaps even thinking of like disaster situations that could happen, they think that it's beneficial to their careers, beneficial to their lives, and that in doing so, they're preventing kind of bad things happening. But from a more psychological perspective, the way that often I see this is more the way you would look at somebody who has like a superstition. So uh, I come from a quite a superstitious culture. So, uh, you know, we don't open umbrellas indoors. We don't whistle indoors. Like there's all kinds of things that you don't do. But if you think about it, you see someone like knock on wood to prevent something bad happening. And probably you think like, oh, that's kind of, that's a little silly, right? Like we all know that's not going to actually work. But in essence, we do the exact same thing in our minds. So oftentimes we feel anxious about the future. We feel worried. Like we're like, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if this endeavor is going to work out. We don't know if we're going to have success. So in order to prevent uh, failure or in order to kind of quench our fear, we engage in constant kind of worrying cycles or projections of possible situations that might be harmful in the future. And in essence, this is very similar to um, superstition or even kind of like um, you see this in OCD where, you know, this people have kind of compulsions. And that was my graduate research. It's really helpful to understand this in the kind of angle of rumination. So a lot of people have heard about rumination, right? It's kind of one of the psychological concepts that are out there. And we know that rumination is incredibly highly correlated with depression. The more you ruminate, the more likely that you're depressed. And this is like cyclical thinking that you can't get out of the pattern. Of the past. Of the past. Okay. So it's about like basically like regurgitating things in the past, not in a helpful way, not like, oh, I'm going to change and become a better person, but more like, oh my gosh, this happened. This was bad. Like self-flagellation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we know that rumination is like, very bad for us psychologically. And oftentimes when I tell people like, okay, how much time do you think you should spend ruminating in your day? Like, what do you think would be helpful? Most of my clients are like, oh, well, yeah, like zero, right? Like that seems like the best scenario here, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like, and science points to that evidence. And so, but then we also know that worry is almost like the other side of the coin of rumination. So it's essentially rumination, but it's creating this like disaster in our brains for the future. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is like, we don't 
consider worry as detrimental as rumination, but it essentially is. It's just the opposite. It's, it's in the future. And so once we kind of understand that this is not necessarily great for us and we're not doing like amazing work by uh, projecting all of these scenarios in our minds in the future, then we have the opportunity to create a better ratio of actually doing helpful planning, which the kind of key way of understanding which one you're doing is to ask yourself how you feel. Mm, currently, so like now. Yes. So if you just engaged in a nice planning session, you're more likely to feel calm, excited, prepared. But if you just engaged in a catastrophic worry cycle, mm you're most likely going to feel more anxious. We're just coming out of like two years of COVID, right? Slowly emerging from COVID. And I'm sure that, you know, 90% of the world's population kind of being cloistered away from each other has exacerbated some probably already existing psychological challenges that we all have probably. Are there any kind of societal trends that you saw or are seeing coming out of that or that, that were precipitated by that, that people might need to think about or address in themselves? Yeah. So, I mean, most things have doubled. Um, OCD rates are higher than before. Anxiety is higher. Depression is higher. And typically as humans, like if you understand kind of the root of this, you'll understand most of it. We have this massive need for autonomy. It's actually one of the three psychological needs. Mm. It's we need it the way we need water. Psychological needs do not actually come after physical needs. We know that even when someone is deprived of physical needs, like water, shelter, etc., they still have psychological needs. Mm-hmm. And so autonomy is this need that we have to have control over our own lives, agency, self-efficacy. And obviously there's a spectrum in this. So certain individuals need it more than others. Oftentimes uh, entrepreneurs are very high in their need for autonomy. When this pandemic hit, when everything changed, our autonomy went down. We felt very out of control, whether that's just the fact that there's this invisible virus that could infect us or whether that's changes in our work environment, school environment, um, the things we can do, the people we can see. And so as autonomy decreases, mental health decreases as well. We need to be able to have control over our lives. I think in the way forward, it's really important for people to start reestablishing that autonomy. So how can people go about that? How can people establish autonomy? Yeah. So um, in psychology, it's interesting because really what the only thing we really study is perceived autonomy. So loneliness is a good way to understand this. So if you think about it, you probably know an individual that like never feels lonely, but they spend a lot of time alone. Mm-hmm. Like maybe like, you know, you think of like the Thoreau, right? Like living in the middle of nowhere, right? Right. That person probably has really low perceived loneliness, but you also probably know individuals that are in a crowd and they're around people all the time and they have high loneliness. Mm-hmm. They have high perceived loneliness. And so in this kind of perception Uh, Viktor Frankl talked about this as well. He was a famous uh, psychiatrist, Holocaust survivor. Essentially, what he said was that between stimulus and response, there's a gap. And in that gap, our choice to perceive. And so one way that we can go about this is oftentimes we tend to ask ourselves the question of the problem, like, how am I stuck? 
how do I not have any options open to me right now? Right. Why does my job suck or something like that, right? This is just natural. It's like, this is our culture. We, we all do this. But one really beneficial thing I think coaching provides is that it asks the positive opposite. It asks solution-focused questions. What you want to be asking yourself is like, what opportunities are open to me? And sometimes I have my clients just like set a timer and like think of the craziest ideas that they can think of and just like brain dump based on that question. Sometimes I work with writers and I've had success with um, helping them with their confidence because as you know, writing is, it's it's a mind game. Um, we do exercises, like we ask the writer to talk about like, how are they good enough? Like, how is their work good enough? Like, why is it good enough? And then we just think of like all the ways it is. It's very rare for us to actually ask that question. And it sounds super, super simplistic. And that's the thing about psychology is that everyone understands it when I talk about it, but very few people actually do it. <laughs> yeah, practice it. And so are those exercises, once you know them, you can just practice them on your own? Yeah, definitely. I think it can be really applied to anything. So like if you have a problem right now, like it's like universal, like maybe you feel unlovable. Maybe you feel like you're not good enough to be hired in the next position. Maybe you feel like you have nothing to say on your YouTube channel or something like that. You can always ask the positive opposite. You can always ask like, okay, how, how am I? Like, you know, like if, if I knew, if I could think of any possible ways to say that I am, what could they maybe be? That I am what? That I am good enough. Oh, okay. Got it. Would you say that there is, I love this idea of almost mental exercise routines. So I, I keep thinking of like Stuart Smalley and affirmations in a mirror. So is there any kind of exercise routine, internal psychological exercise routine that people can do periodically that's kind of maintenance in that regard? It sounds like a totally sophomoric stupid question, but I'm just really curious. I think one uh, kind of almost like mental hygiene exercise that can be really helpful is to just essentially do kind of like a brain dump, like a brain download. Like what is what like is on my mind right now? And for some individuals, it can feel a little bit scary because sometimes people have this perception that if I write something down that's bothering me, it's going to make it more real. Mm. But oftentimes what we see is that once we put our fears like out into the light of day, they often actually diminish. And that's often why coaching therapy, et cetera, is one of the reasons it's beneficial is because you have this other person sitting there and being like, oh, that's not bad. That Validation. Yeah. <laughs> like that's normal. You're fine. Yeah. Um, and so we can do this for ourselves on a daily basis and kind of see like, what are these thinking patterns that are running in the back of my mind? Because um, oftentimes we do have some things that are a little bit self-sabotaging or, you know, we're judging situations in a certain way, or maybe we just have a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes just getting that fear out, getting those thoughts out can feel really good. Yeah, I journal. And the thing is, is I find that I journal mostly when I'm not in a good space, when I'm, you know, nervous, anxious, I'm procrastinating about something or I'm perseverating, worried that something might happen in the future that I don't want. And so I'll journal then. And I always think, man, when I die, if someone looks at my journal, they're going to just think I was the most messed up, depressed person in the world because that's the only time I write. And I just <laughs> thought, I'm going to have to like write on the cover. This was a psychological brain dump cleansing exercise. <laughs> 
So that makes total sense to me anyway, because that's essentially how I have turned to using journaling is basically as that kind of cleansing brain dump. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of science on this that it's actually beneficial. It's been proven. One other uh, activity that came to mind when you were speaking, and it kind of speaks to this like negative emotional state that we find, often find ourselves in. It's normal. It's part of life that I found really helpful for some of my clients is to think of in advance the top kind of five negative emotions that you're willing to feel to achieve the thing that you want to achieve. Mm. So if you prime yourself in advance thinking like, okay, so I want to really make this startup a success, but you know, on my way, I'm willing to feel like a failure. I'm willing to feel fear. I'm willing to feel overworked. I'm willing to feel anxious. And then when you do feel those emotions, you're like, oh, okay, I expected this. Like nothing's going wrong. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me. It doesn't mean that I'm not doing a good job, which is often how we feel when we feel these uh, negative I was looking at some of your YouTube shorts and Melissa has a great YouTube channel if you guys are curious about it. And two of them kind of struck me. One was that I love the title of this one. It was life is 50% bad. Sorry. <laughs> that was one. And the other one was processing. I love this idea processing the grief of not being superhuman. And I think that both of those things are kind of related in a way. So why don't you tell us a little bit about life is 50% bad and not being superhuman or being okay with not being superhuman? Like how are those things linked? Yeah, those, I mean, the superhuman one is something we I work on quite a bit with my clients. Yeah, with startup people, right? Yeah, and also my tech leaders as well. I mean, you know that like they say like Google's harder to get into than an Ivy League school. So these these are, you know, they're high achievers. It's something that I've thought a lot about. I remember taking things like positive psychology and that was a huge trend be like 5 years ago in psychology 10 years ago. I think we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot here in our culture. And mm. um this like massive desire to be happy. And we've essentially created this culture in which when you are not happy, you feel like something's going wrong, mm. and that you're not doing a good job. I'm sure uh, social media doesn't help because everyone's just, you know, posting their highlight reels. It's like this frantic desire to get out of the negative emotion because you make it mean that you're not okay. Like this isn't okay and you're not doing a good job like everyone else out there is doing a good job at being happy but you're not mm. and so if you start thinking like okay if i just expect life to be 50 percent negative emotion like or you know whatever you want to think then like when you do feel those difficult emotions is what we tend to call them in psychology because we don't like to call them negative then you're like oh okay this is this is life and i'm sure many of your listeners are from other cultures mm -hmm in which maybe they might have this experience. I was born in Ukraine, so, you know, an Eastern European, we kind of have this stereotype of like being a little bit grumpy and <laughs> nihilistic. <laughs> and so like, I think that also can be very protective. Mm. Um, and I think like if we were to merge that like comfort with the negative emotional state that certain cultures have with that beautiful American optimism, I think like psychologically speaking, that would just be like the optimal combination. Mm. Yeah, I think that you're right. Social media carries a lot of responsibility for making us feel like the rest of the world is shiny, happy people. And no one goes on Facebook to post their worst moment in life, right? So as you're going through these feeds, 
they did this survey a while back. It was ages ago, but they did a survey about whether people felt better or worse after cruising Facebook for a half an hour. And it was almost like unilaterally worse people felt after looking at social media for a period of time because they were comparing. It was this comparative kind of natural thing that we do. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, so I want to address your second question about the desire to superhuman be superhuman. Yeah. So I think to us, this is a coping mechanism that is protective in our minds. We have this image in our culture, this kind of like person that is able to achieve great things and just work to like incredibly impressive lengths um, to achieve these great things and to just constantly work more and more. And so I see this in my clients in which essentially they work to the point where it's no longer helpful, it's becoming harmful. Mm. And so a lot of people um, have encountered this trend of self-care, you know, on Instagram, etc. Like it's a huge kind of movement, which is in mental health, which is good. But also I find that a lot of my clients kind of have a layer of shame in relation to this because it feels to them like self-care should be like this additional thing that they need to layer on to like be competent people. Mm. And so not only do they want to do all of the things, but self-care is one of the checkboxes that they need to tick. And so it's like we have a really hard time grieving the fact that we can't push ourselves to endless degrees. Mm -hmm. And accepting that can be really difficult. I think it is a grief process in that we have this vision of ourselves of somebody that is non-destructible which is protective. Mm -hmm. And if we were to have a healthier relationship with ourselves, we would need to grieve that vision of ourselves. We would need to realize Mm. that we are human and we have certain limitations. We have certain needs, psychological and physical. And it's a very unattractive proposition if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, American culture is very extreme in a lot of different ways, right? We're extreme politically. We're extreme in terms of you know, this kind of fake Horatio Algier story that's been running rampant in our culture for a hundred years. Now this kind of tech startup series B funding millionaire overnight kind of weird fable that has developed in our culture sets us up for that kind of dinging ourselves for not being that person, not being that superhuman. You must come across that a lot in the tech industry. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, everyone is always like looking up to people like Elon Musk and just judging themselves for not having that work ethic. But if you think about it, so my training is in psychological research. If you think about it, if we were to run an experiment to figure out what the variable of success was for these individuals, there'd be so many variables to track. We wouldn't know how to determine what made them successful. Mm. And hours worked is only one variable, right? Right. Honestly, it's not even hours worked. It's hours reported that they worked. Right. Interesting. This episode of the Brand Design Masters podcast is sponsored by Bring Your Own Laptop. BYOL.me is a top-tier Adobe application video training website featuring Daniel Scott. Daniel's a certified Adobe trainer and keynote speaker at the Adobe Max conference every year. At byol.me forward slash Philip, you can learn everything from the basics to advanced aspects of your favorite Adobe applications. 
all for one low monthly subscription fee. Visit byol.me forward slash philip, P-H-I-L-I-P. Again, that's byol.me forward slash philip. I just know you're going to be amazed at Bring Your Own Laptops courses. So let's talk about your brand a little bit. So how do you get your clients? How do you promote yourself? You're, you have a YouTube channel, you're writing on LinkedIn. So when did you start doing that sort of content and has that helped you in your business? My business is actually still quite new. Um, this is my second year okay. of having an individual coaching practice. Before I was working at the Institute of Coaching, which is um, a part of the kind of psychiatric hospital at Harvard, which we call McLean, which is a part of medical school. They're all very fragmented there. And so that um, institute is responsible for doing coaching research and disseminating it to practitioners. Started my practice part-time while I was there. I've had the YouTube channel, I think, for this is year two as well. And I was already a little bit in the coaching space prior to this. And I do live in Seattle, so I am very kind of in this like silicon forest is what we call it out here. I don't think anyone actually ever says that. That's you, that's <laughs> you just made that up. I like that. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. Okay. <laughs> No, but it is. I was up in Seattle working with Microsoft a number of times, and it is. It's like this verdant kind of green, rainy forest that's kind of dotted with like these giant high-tech technology buildings. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so um, I definitely had a, um, quite a few connections prior to my practice, so I've had the opportunity okay. to work individuals that already knew me. Okay. And yeah, I've had quite a few individuals find me through LinkedIn that's really the place to be as a coach because that's where people are actually thinking about these concepts. So a lot of you know my listeners of this podcast are creative professionals. And one of the things that creative professionals have to be is creative. Is there a way that people or practices or mental exercises that people can utilize to their benefit to kind of optimize their creativity? Yeah, definitely. So I like to help people conceptualize the brain as a tool. Mm. So um, I'm not someone that's familiar with a lot of tools, so bear with me and my metaphors. But like, okay. like a wrench, right? <laughs> and there's like little knobby things on the wrench. And if you use it too much, it starts to like deteriorate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you think about your brain, we don't have endless self-control. We don't have endless resources, even though it kind of feels like it with the brain. Mm -hmm. And so as a creative worker, you actually need to be quite careful with your thought process. And this is not something that people think about quite a bit, but essentially we do have the ability to guide our thoughts and to kind of really shape where we live in our minds during the day. Mm-hmm. This is not something that's really practiced because I feel like we all just only have our thoughts in our minds and we're the only ones like judging them. So we're like, ah, it's fine. Like, I'll just think whatever. <laughs> it's not external. Like no one else can judge it. We're not putting it on Instagram. Right? Yeah, you can't. I mean, you're in your own head. So you, it's hard to step back from it, basically. Correct. And it's also hard to say like, oh, um, you know, I basically was like super unkind to myself and all I did was ruminate and worry today. And like, because right. honestly, the only one that really knows about that is ourselves. But those actually have very, very kind of concrete side effects in our lives. Mm -hmm. So where you spend your mental energy and how much of it you spend has a huge impact on creativity. 
And so um, I previously was talking about worry and rumination. So we actually know that worry and rumination are not great for creativity because essentially what we're doing is we're activating the sympathetic response. So what we do on a regular basis is we basically create almost like a psychological war zone in our minds. Mm. So we're either like living in the past where bad things happened, we're thinking about those, or we're worrying about like made up future things that happen. Where bad things are going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Or the third one, which we all love to do, is being really mean to ourselves. <laughs> In the moment. Yes. Yeah. So it's a triumvirate of great places to be. <laughs> yeah. And like being mean to yourself, like if you're someone that has that relationship with yourself, which a lot of us do, it kind of is almost like if you're walking around with someone that's going to hit you at mm. any moment, you don't know when. Nice. I love yeah. that. Great you have no metaphor. You're going to hit yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. Wow. How do you pull out of that? It was interesting. I, I This is my second podcast for today. I was talking to a guy named Mark uh, Drager this morning, who's an agency owner, and we were talking about The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle's The Book, The Power of Now, which is was very, very deep book for me. And one I mentioned to you actually on LinkedIn, uh, Richard Carlson's uh, You Can Feel Good Again, which are both based around the same concept of being in the present and not ruminating and not worrying. But the theme that comes up is when you bring your thoughts to the present or how do you recognize when you are worrying about the future or ruminating in the past and how you have the presence of mind to recognize when that's happening and to pull yourself back to the present. And that's what I think is the hardest thing for people to do, because like you said, you're in your own head and you kind of get stuck in that cycle. I actually love the power now. I love Eckhart Tolle. I know that some of these things are a little bit more fringe from psychological science, but it's actually catching up. There's huge intersection between Buddhism and actual psychological research in which a lot of research is showing that these practices are essentially ideal for our psychology. Mm. And so there's a, this whole like mindfulness movement in psychology as well. I think some of the kind of spiritual aspects sometimes scare people off, particularly in my space. I think sometimes they feel like, oh, it's like not something that's accessible to me. Because people aren't spiritual? Not Necessarily, I think it just feels like for an individual that's say like maybe like an engineer, it mm -hmm. just feels like it's not in the world of the concrete. Oh, too woo woo. It, it feels very abstract. Right. Okay. And so when your mind has kind of been conditioned to think in algorithms mm -hmm. or computers, it's like the mind becomes very concrete, like, you know, this, like I need proofs. I think when we talk about the abstract and we expect people to suspend judgment to believe in these things, mm. it can be very difficult for certain individuals whose minds have been tailored in such a way by their work to view a very kind of concrete, almost like black and white. I'm really glad you're bringing this up. I mean, I work with all sorts of clients. I've worked with clients in the aviation industry, a lot of whom are engineers, a lot of whom are ex-military and are very concrete thinkers. And I have to kind of get in there and explain brand personality and brand strategy and a lot of kind of softer emotion skill set sort of things, which are important when it comes to branding and getting people to buy and motivational psychology and all that sort of stuff. But when you're dealing with engineers and those sorts of folks, how do you institute the sort of learning and insights that you are obviously so good at articulating and to help them adopt them so they can be of benefit to them. What's your way in? Mm, yeah, I mean, and yeah, branding is so psychological. I agree with you. 
I like to help people understand this in terms of habit. I think that's often a really accessible point for us to enter in through. If you consider this from like a more neuropsychological angle, essentially you've probably heard this idea that we're neurons that fire together, wire together. So essentially this concept of neuroplasticity that the more repetitions we get in certain kind of habits in, that we develop in our minds, the more likely that we're going to create those repetitions in the future. And so oftentimes I tell people like, okay, think about your kind of night routine. You're about to brush your teeth and think about, you know, me coming in and being like, tonight you're going to brush your teeth with your left hand, if I'm assuming you're right-handed, which the majority population is. And think about how strange that feels. Think about how you don't like that. And so essentially when we're changing automatic thoughts in our brain, that's actually proven. That's how learning feels. It feels like agitating. Mm. Oh, interesting. Friction. Yeah, there's evidence to show that when we have that like uncomfortable feeling, like it's almost like, ah, oh, that's actually when the learning is happening. Yeah, it's like pain is growth. <laughs> really, growth is pain. It was like if you are in pain and uncomfortable, chances are you're growing because that's we always learn from the toughest experiences in our lives. Like going to the gym, like obviously there's like a balance there, right? Because you don't want right. too much pain because that actually often isn't conducive to growth either. But you want like a certain stimulus of pain. Mm -hmm. And so if we think of kind of being in the present, not activating our sympathetic response via rumination, worry, or just self-criticism, if we want to change those habits, those mental processes, what we will need to do is we will need to stack up as many repetitions of pulling our mind into the present as possible. Mm because we're trying to create a different habit. And if you tell people like, oh, your mind going straight into the future to worry whenever you feel stress is a habit, then that's a lot more accessible than saying, you know, like develop the spiritual practice of uh, living in the moment. Right. What? what does that mean? <laughs> yes, I totally get it. Let's talk a little bit about confidence because we started off before we hit record talking about confidence and just to give the listeners some context i was running four mastermind groups in the last year and people coming out of that 12-week experience of being in this mastermind with 10 other people when i asked them what was the one thing they were going to take away that would last longer than the group to a person almost they said confidence and going into it i did not know that this was going to be the big takeaway i thought they were going to say you know business acumen or you know having a better network or something like that and all of them like took it to confidence i kind of got the sense that there was a bit of a crisis of confidence going on in our society but also in creative people, in the fact that we missed that constant feedback channel that we got from working closely with people in an office or closely with people in close physical proximity, which wasn't happening for the last couple of years. And people needed that mirror. They needed a mirror to reflect back their own decisions because they just needed validation in their decision making. So many people were just, they didn't trust themselves. As soon as they got a chance to voice what their decisions were, why they were going to do it, and then got some feedback, it completely bolstered their self-confidence. And so when you coach people in building confidence, how do you go about that when it's not in like a group setting like that? How do you coach someone to build their confidence? 
Yeah. And I mean, so many of the things you said make so much sense because it's difficult to develop confidence in a vacuum. Back to psychological needs, the other two psychological needs are relatedness, which is essentially like that social connection. And then the third psychological needs is competence. And that is that feeling that somebody has kind of assessed your work and thought it was good, <laughs> like thought mm. you were competent. And so we regulate each other in this aspect. And once you take away that kind of social regulation we have between each other, it's more difficult to regulate yourself. But it is possible. It just it would require kind of a more stringent practice of developing the habit of believing in yourself. And so this is something that I see with a lot of individuals is that we often expect certain psychological processes to come to us without doing any of the work. Like what? A lot of individuals have a tendency to think very negatively, to think a lot of negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. And this can be a personality trait, or it can just um, even be maybe like a low-grade depression. And so obviously, if you're actually depressed, that's a whole different story, and you should seek help for that. But if you're someone who just kind of has entered a pessimistic state, I find a lot of individuals are very kind of attached to their negative thoughts. And what we need to realize is that with the negative thinking, it's similar to kind of like if you consider weight loss, right? So we know that if somebody wants to lose weight, and I'm not judging anyone, like you can lose weight, you cannot. If say someone does want to lose weight, they probably know that they can't eat like a whole cake every day if they want to lose weight. Like they can't eat like, you know, 5,000 calories or something right. like that, right? Yeah. And so they can't have both. They can't eat the 5,000 calories and lose weight. And so what I see with psychology is a lot of people want to feel happy. They want to feel content. They want to feel fulfilled. But they also want to think a lot of negative thoughts, particularly about themselves. Mm. And so you're going to have to make the choice. Like you can have one or the other, but you can't have both, unfortunately. And that's kind of like the life is 50% bad kind of thing, right? Yeah. In psychology, we call this metacognition, thinking about thinking. Mm -hmm. That's what it means, so metacognition. Yeah. I think a lot of the harm we do upon ourselves is in our metacognition. Mm. So we all are going to have like evaluations of situations that are negative or like, you know, like I don't like being in this meeting or, you know, this coworker was mean to me or something like that. Like, that's fine. But what we often do is we go in on a second layer and we're like, well, this coworker was mean to me. And that means that nobody likes me. So you're taking it to the nth degree. It's like the thought about the thought we like, we like to pile it on. Mm. So obviously it's difficult to control like all of the thoughts that come into your mind, but we have a huge opportunity in what they mean. So we could make it mean something horrible about ourselves, or we could make it mean like, oh, I had a passing negative thought and everyone has those, like everyone has negative thoughts. So you can either maximize it or minimize it basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think like when we latch onto it like that, when we're like, oh gosh. You're feeding the beast. You're thinking about thinking, right? If you conceptualize it like the way you would learning. So we know that focus and attention equal learning, right? And so if you were in school and you're memorizing something and you spent a lot of attention on it, then you would probably be more likely to recall it in your mind later. But if you saw something, you know, in your textbook and you just barely glanced over it, you probably wouldn't be able to recall it easily later. And 
we don't have like special circuits in the brain just for learning kind of psychological concepts versus learning like other concepts. Learning is learning. Mm. So the more focus and attention and repetition you put into anything, the more likely you're going to be able to recall it, even if it's negative thoughts about yourself. Well, Alessa, it's been awesome talking to you. I always end my podcast interviews with the rapid fire 10. So I'm going to ask you 10 quick questions and then one final big one. So first of all, what's your spirit animal? Mm, Cat. (laughs) Morning person or night person? Morning. Beach or mountains? Beach. What's your secret talent most people don't know that you can do? I can lift really heavy things. I do CrossFit. (laughs) All right. Favorite song of all time? Anything but Mariah Carey. (laughs) Favorite place in the world? Oh, gosh. Uh, Tokyo, Japan. What's the one thing you would love to master? Mm, YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Who's your hero? Oh, gosh. I have so many. I'll go with Victor Frankl. Okay. What's the one thing you would tell your 20-year-old self? Work on psychological health. Okay. And finally, the big one. Do you have a personal mantra or manifesto that you tried to live your life by? Yes, I actually encountered this one when I was quite young, and I've thought about it ever since. And it's by John Milton. Some of you might know this quote. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Oh, I love that. That is really good. Really good. Well done. So, Alessa Lorowski, thank you for coming on and talking to us on Brand Design Masters Podcast. If people want to engage with you or check out your newsletter or YouTube channel, where do you want to be found? Yeah, you can just type in my name into YouTube, LinkedIn, or Google. I'm the only one of my name. <laughs> that is awesome. Not many people can say that. Yeah, well, I married uh, Italian-Mexican, so my last name is from that, and I'm Ukrainian. So that combination isn't that common. Not that so. common, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk to me if you have any questions. I'm always happy to answer questions. I know sometimes people feel like People say that and they don't mean it, but I mean it. And I do actually like uh, responding to them. Thank you so much, Alessa. Thank you so much, Philip. You have a great rest of your day. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com slash muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com slash muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.